This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there, great to have you along and I want you to play along today and tell me what has been the most interesting, the most unusual reason that you've had to stop harvesting. Now obviously the rain put the brakes on proceedings uh, last week in some parts of the agricultural zone here in WA, but what is the most interesting reason you've had to stop harvest? Might even scratch out a prize somewhere? I don't know. We'll see what's in the bag somewhere out the back. The text 0448 922604. The most unusual reason you've had to stop harvest. 0448 922604. We'll talk about that just before news headlines at half past 12. And also today, beverage and food writer Katie Spain is going to tell you all about the popularity of no low wine. Now, she says her followers are desperate for any information about low and non-alcoholic wines. Anytime I write a piece on NOLO, it goes crazy online, gets a lot of clicks. And I found that when I find something with zero alcohol, like a, a German Riesling, for example, people get in touch a lot with a lot more enthusiasm often than when I post about something with alcohol in it. So there's a genuine interest. I think because people are looking for beverages and alcohol alternatives that are really great. And so when I post something that is genuinely good, they want to know what it is and where they can get it from. And I get that too, because some of the uh, no-low wines that I've tried are pretty ordinary. So to crack that mystery and come up with something that tastes just as good as the alcoholic wine without the alcohol would be, well, you'd be onto something, wouldn't you? We'll hear more from Katie Spain just before news headlines at half past 12, seven past 12 here on the Country Hour. Now, Australia will soon have a new fellow of the World Academy of Sciences in Professor Kadambot Siddiq. The University of Western Australia Hackett Professor is a passionate pulse researcher and earlier this year was named WA's Scientist of the Year. He says with food security becoming such an important issue, it's now crucial the world's best researchers collaborate with each other and agricultural scientists play a big part in that. So agriculture science is very important uh, if you look at uh, in terms of uh, global food security, uh, global nutritional security, any human development, the basis is of uh, agriculture and food system. So uh, that way, the innovative science and technology continually being developed in advanced countries or developed countries need to be deployed uh, for that. For example, climate change is happening uh, geopolitical situation is uh, giving a lot of trouble for the transfer of food from one place to the other. So agriculture will remain as one of the key areas of uh, science and technology in the academy and other academies because food industry is the largest industry in the world. Uh, so me joining in the academy will provide a, a further formalized platform where I can collaborate with the academy fellows to enhance uh, food and nutritional security in various parts of the world. UWA Hackett Professor Kadambot Sadiq speaking to Tara Delangraft about becoming a fellow of the World Academy 
of Sciences. Well done. Well, a renowned WA grain breeder agrees with Kadam Botsadik. Intergrain CEO Tress Wormsley thinks it's time more global resources are thrown at finding solutions to food insecurity and climate change. She says if we think big and take risks, who knows, we might end up developing something like a nitrogen-fixing wheat. No, it's probably not realistic at this point in time, but for me, it's one of the really dream big, think big things that science should be doing. And so we can do conservative science and that is fantastic. But every now and again, we should be prepared to do something transformational and really step out of our comfort zone. A bit like what's happened with COVID. Yeah, so my analogy is when I look back at the learning that I got from COVID and that is that when COVID broke out, everyone said, oh no, we have a massive problem because we can't invent a vaccine in less than three and a half years. But if you put the right amount of resources, the right supportive environment, create collaborative science and just tell the scientists that they have to do this, they did it. And they didn't just invent one, they invented like three or four in you know less than 12 months. And so for me, when we are thinking about how we step into solving climate change and some of the, you know, the big things that are challenging us in agriculture, we are going to have to be innovative with how we tackle that. Do you think with agricultural research we have been a little bit old-fashioned and caught up with our paradigms? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that if you actually say, well, we've been doing a pretty awesome job so my example of that is in WA, you know, past 30 years, you can't doubt now that we're in a drying climate and we've got increased heat. And we, as an industry, have still been producing more and more higher volumes. So we are actually doing a really good job, but as that climate change challenge becomes more accelerated, doing more of just the same probably isn't going to be enough. So let's, I suppose, take the blinkers off our scientists provide a really supportive environment for them to be safe, to go, what if we did this? When you're talking about support, you're really talking finance, are you? It's, it, no, it's not just finance. Finance is one of it. But um, I actually think that it is, it is providing a very supportive environment where people actually feel comfortable so that they can sit on a stage like I did today and propose why don't why aren't we thinking about nitrogen fixing wheat I think that most scientists would never let that come out of their mouths because their colleagues would laugh at them and so it's also about us as an industry not shooting people down when they come out with these weird and wacky ideas and going, hey, let's step back and have a little bit of a think about that. And sometimes it might be, we probably won't get to nitrogen fixing wheat, but we might get to uh, a wheat that is much more nutrient efficient. And so we might just get halfway, but that's still a fantastic outcome. When you mentioned this concept today, someone in the audience, Phil Verko from UWA, his addition to that was to be prepared to take risks and have some failures as well. Would you agree that maybe that's something that we need to be doing a bit more of? Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I would actually say a shout out to GRDC. It is starting to acknowledge that in its, you know, R&D plan. It talks about the fact that we need to be investing in some higher risk research uh, and as an industry being prepared to do that. Nitrogen fixing wheat 
as you admitted, might be too far off. But what's maybe a bit more realistic in the short and the medium term, do you think? So I think that, like, in terms of plant breeding, just in that little sector, we're on this amazing tech pathway. So we have new technology available to us. So we have gene editing tools coming available. But I think probably the, the big change for us is just data. So to put it in perspective, I have this fun little fact, which is that wheat is actually five times more genetically complex than a human. Now in the past, that complexity that we have in wheat challenges us because we don't know how to deal with it. There's too much of the unknown. But now that complexity, because we could have genotyping, phenotyping, all of these omics scientists coming to us and all of that um, genotyping, for instance, is now much faster, much cheaper, that we now have so much more knowledge. So that complexity in wheat, which was in historically a challenge for us, is now an opportunity. And so I feel like we're on you know, the cusp of a next revolution in terms of where we can get to. Do you think the graph in the past has maybe looked like it's going up but very, very slowly? Are you saying you think that graph is about to have a steep curve upwards? Is that what you're, you're hoping or is that what you're predicting? Both, actually. <laughs> hoping and predicting. Um, but I think if, you, if we go back and we can identify some step change changes, uh, one of those is like the Green Revolution, so where we had, you know, semi-dwarfs coming available to us and we can actually see a step change. Whether we will see an actual step change for some of these things, we may not because at the same time as we're making these scientific advancements, we're also trying to just, you know, keep away the impact of climate change. So it may not be a massive step change, but our challenge as scientists is simply just to keep ahead of that climate change impact. If you are talking about having breeding uh, tools to help combat climate change, and you're talking about support, I mean, in the past, a lot of the breeding that you've been involved in has been right here in WA or right here in Australia. Do you think there needs to be more collaboration between countries as well? Because we're talking about something to do with climate change that involves everyone. I'd say there's already a fair amount of, of uh, collaboration globally going on. So, for instance, like at Intergrain, we're now uh, working with a uh, US-based um, gene editing company called Inario at Inari. And so that's just one example of some global collaboration that, that we've got. And our agriculture, our grains industry has benefited from, you know, CIMA in Mexico and being able to utilise germplasm out of there. So... I think that there are, there's good level of global collaboration um, already going on. Do you reckon it could be ramped up though, if you're talking about increasing that support and thinking big? Everything can always be ramped up in science and particularly in plant breeding. So one of the number one things of how you make gain in plant breeding is scale. So the plant breeders are always saying, can I have more? And if you actually make something more efficient, and so that means you can start early in the program, that never translates to a saving. It is always just, oh, well, now we can do more of something else. Tress Wormsley, who is the CEO of cereal breeding company Intergrain and also chair of GIWA, the Grains Industry Association of Western Australia. And she was explaining to Richard Hudson why she thinks it's time to throw more resources 
at solving problems, things like climate change and food insecurity. And they were at the recent annual WA Conference for Australian Association of Agricultural Consultants. 17 past 12. I'm Bevan Eats from Manjimup and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA. Now, no low wine or wine with no and low alcohol is becoming so popular. Even the wine industry is starting to jump on board, although there is still a lot of work to do as far as developing a wine with all the flavour minus the alcohol. Now, getting hooked on the no low trend is often a lifestyle choice. But that's not always the case. Dr. Steve Goodman is from the University of Adelaide and he loves wine. He's worked in the industry for over 25 years and the thought of having a no-low wine never crossed his mind until one day his wife was forced to give up alcohol. We started down the no-low path probably three or four years ago I mean, in terms of research and honestly at the time as a, as a dedicated wine consumer and someone with a great interest in wine, it's one of my wife and my shared loves, the topic of no-low wine really I couldn't wrap my head around. It seemed funny to be paying the money for it and, and why would you compared to everything else. I had a few, few medical incidents last year and, and medication I was on for six months had me away from alcohol. We just started to move back onto it. My wife was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is doing okay at the moment. And so all of a sudden, NOLO, out of nowhere, NOLO became from a research interest to actually a lifestyle choice where it was something that we actually needed to embrace and to move into. It was quite remarkable to start to see how the idea of beverages without alcohol can appear out of nowhere. Um, It's not just through choice, it's sometimes by circumstances. Fortunately, the wine industry is really now starting to take it seriously. The market is is moving quite quickly in terms of growth. So the wine industry is looking at generating wines for consumers who either have that that choice forced upon them or who make that choice themselves to be providing a, a wine beverage that actually delivers the enjoyment and the satisfaction taste-wise and mouthfeel-wise of what a wine with alcohol does. And what do you think of the quality of no-low wines? What have both you and your wife found uh, in your journey of drinking them? So I'll be honest, we're more, more down the path of alcoholic beers seem to really be taking the cake in terms of where they're delivering in terms of taste. Some of them are actually quite difficult to pick up the taste and but through you can actually now get even craft beers that are no-low. So wine is lagging behind quite a bit. The majority of wines really haven't managed to capture that mouthful yet, so hence the research that we're involved in now and working with our colleagues out at um, the Waite Institute, the, the School of Food, Agriculture and Wine, to actually look at what can be done from anything from actually the grapes that are grown, which grapes are grown, how they're harvested, different steps in making the wine, different yeasts, different methods of dealcoholizing the wine to still get that mouthful. But it is improving. You and your wife are, are getting closer to finding that wine that tastes like alcoholic wine? Let's just say it's, it's still a mission for a bit of a search for the Holy Grail, but it, it's out there and it's coming closer. And fortunately, the Australian wine industry is doing a lot at this point in time, not just wineries and large wine companies, but also industry as a whole starting to get behind it. So this is something we really need to embrace. And I guess from a commercial sense, I think back 20 years ago when I started my wine marketing consulting and, and research then, it was looking at, well, the wine industry needs these younger consumers to start looking at choosing wine over beer or spirits because 
that's going to be a 40 or 50 year purchase as a consumer to choose wine. If 18 to 24 year olds now are moving away from alcohol and if, if they start to move towards beer, we're actually looking at the 18 to 24 year olds being a 40, 50, 60 year market. So there's a lot at stake when you look at what this is going to generate over the next 40, 50, 60 years of those consumers' purchases. University of Adelaide wine and marketing expert, Dr Steve Goodman. While certainly a challenge, there are plenty of Australian businesses happy to give Nolo wine a crack. Ben Mellows started Polka Drops in South Australia in 2021 after seeing a gap in the marketplace for quality Nolo wines. He says improvements are being made in the industry all the time, but customers do already seem pretty happy with the products. When we got into it, there was less people than there are now, definitely, and we had anticipated the amount of new entrants when we when we got into it. But we came in at a good time as far as the South Australian dedicated non-alcoholic brand. There wasn't really too many others doing much, so we got in not knowing how it would go, but thought utilising the technology that's available to remove the alcohol and South Australian wine would be a good place for us to start. And yeah, it's kind of evolved really from an interest in the category and seeing some potential and then some key learnings once we launched and saw that there really was demand for it. So how has it all been going? How has it been learning about the industry and actually making the product? It's been fascinating. It's very different to our food manufacturing and you're dealing with something that people have very strong perceptions of in non-alcoholic. Everyone's got a, an opinion and they're quite often justified in, in not thinking that they're the best tasting products in non-alcoholic drinks because every, everyone in Australia is fairly well versed in what wine tastes like and the expectations of what a non-alcoholic product might taste like, often they are expect people are expecting to taste really bad. So our job is to try and create a product that gives people the same experience of drinking and of having an alcoholic drink just without the alcohol. And in doing so, it's been uh, educational for both us and for the consumers who we're trying to give options that really are something to be enjoyed and something to be celebrated and something to be shared uh, just without the alcohol. So it's been, um, in many respects, challenging, but in, in other respects, it's been enormously rewarding to be able to add some products with a bit, a bit more depth than um, to the to the category. Yes, for people that might not understand, how difficult is it to get non-alcoholic wine to taste as much as possible like real wine? It's very difficult because with wine, so much of the flavour is contained within the alcohol. So if you're removing the alcohol, you're taking away a lot of the body. And now we, we use good quality South Australian wine from different regions. We choose particular varietals of wine that will survive the alcohol process once we remove the alcohol it's kind of when we begin so we take the alcohol out and then we work a little bit differently in that we're not just trying to remove the alcohol out and then see if we've got a good product left we utilize native botanical extracts to create the different flavor notes or the different textures and aromas that that we really are looking for in our products so that they might resemble something like a an Aussie sparkling do you think there's still improvements to be made there certainly are um, improvements that have been made in the last couple of years to that point, but yeah, we're still working and well, the wine industry is trying to find ways to give more um, tasty options and different levels of alcohol, whether it's low alcoholic wine or, or mid-strength wine. But yeah, look, I think we're still at the beginning of this. The category is growing in popularity. So when things are popular and there's consumer demand, uh, a lot more people get to work. 
Polka Drops co-owner and founder Ben Mellows. So is Nolo Wine really here to stay? Katie Spain writes about beverages for many national Australian publications. Giving up alcohol herself for a month earlier this year, she has explored many Nolo wine options. Ms Spain says consumers are very thirsty when it comes to content about all things Nolo. Nolo, as they call it, no and low alcohol, is a huge trend at the moment. Occasionally I hear the word kind of burgeoning thrown around, but it's booming. It's huge. I don't think there's a single beverage or alcoholic beverage around that has, isn't um, that producers aren't having a crack at made it, making a no or low alcohol version. And is it something within the industry people are wanting to hear more about? Are you getting inquiries about no low wine? Do your readers want to hear more about those options? They are desperate for information about it. Anytime I write a piece on no low, it goes crazy online, gets a lot of clicks. You know, if I post something on Instagram, which I do often, if I find a drink, alcoholic or otherwise, that I really genuinely love, I'll often just pop it up on Instagram. And I found that when I find something with zero alcohol, like a a German Riesling, for example, people get in touch a lot (laughs) with a lot more enthusiasm often than when I post about something with alcohol in it. So there's a genuine interest. I think because people are looking for beverages and alcohol alternatives that are really great. And so when I post something that is genuinely good, they want to know what it is and where they can get it from. Because there are some duds out there, I think that when you do find the good ones, it's it's great to, to share it. And people, we're living in hard times, aren't we? You know, financially, I think people want to feel confident about where they're putting their hard earned dollars. So any tips that, that I can give them um, is always very warmly received. Yeah, so it really is here to stay then. Oh, yeah, it's here to stay. Uh, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. I think the more quality products we see out there, the really good ones will rise to the top and they will stick around. Beverage and food writer Katie Spain ending that report from Elsie Adamo. 27 past 12. We'll get an update from the newsroom shortly. First, though, I'm really keen to hear about what has brought Harvest to an abrupt halt at your place. Now, I know there was some rain about last week and obviously that um, put the brakes on things. And there are some hot and dry conditions through some shires that have imposed harvest bans and Richard Hudson's going to go through those shortly just after a cross to the Bureau of Meteorology. But what else has brought harvest to a stop at your place? There's a few on the text already. Ash and Corrigan says, stopped harvest for a ballet concert today. Thank you for that, Ash. Uh, Brenton at Broom Hill had to stop harvest over the weekend so my boss could go to the Coldplay concert. Is that right? And Luke says, we had to stop harvesting at Boyup Brook once to take care of a bunch of wild pigs that had set up camp by a dam in the crop. One was that heavy we had to lift him up on the comb of the header to get him on the back of the ute. Two blokes couldn't lift him. That was a bit different. Thank you for that, Luke. Can you beat any of those? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Text through, and let me know. Mark Livell has been helping the Carruthers family harvest their crop near Lake Grace, about three hundred and fifty kilometres southeast of Perth, and he says they had to put the brakes on to save a cute little echidna. We were harvesting around a, a patch of trees, and I was harvesting around a dam bank next to the trees, and I've noticed Greg's 
yeah, turned his header off and reversed back and hopped out. And I've sort of thought, oh, yeah, he's probably hit something or picked something up in the header front. And yeah, he sort of waved me down and sort of got me to come over and bring me bring me phone over. And yeah, we've just sort of seen a echidna sitting there in the in the crop. So we've sort of thought, oh, lucky guy is probably sitting straight under Greg's wheel wheel line. So yeah, it was a, it was a very lucky uh, lucky echidna. What was going through your mind when you saw the echidna there? Oh, we just thought, oh, poor little guy. He's, he's obviously a bit lost. He was a bit scared. Yeah, we just sort of thought, oh, we'd better quickly shift him. And Greg's asked me to get some rags out of the header because he didn't have any in his header. So quickly gone and got my rags and, yeah, just sort of chucked him over the echidna and picked him up. Yeah, shifted him into the bush. Gosh, and what was that feeling like? Oh, it was really cool. Yeah, it's obviously like you've done your good deed for the day type thing. Don't like to see those sort of animals hurt anyway. So, no, it was, it was really cool, yeah, to pick him up and and chuck him back in the bush. And we could see the log where he'd sort of been hiding under. And um, so we sort of just put him back in there and, yeah, got him out of the way. So, no, it was really good. You see heaps of echidnas all the time over the roads and stuff. I've, I've seen them in paddocks, but, yeah, sort of you've – They've sort of shifted on from where you've been harvesting, so I've never never come across across one like nearly run over one type thing. So yeah, so how close of a call was it? Yeah, no, you would have been uh, very lucky. Greg did very well to spot him because I think Greg was on the phone at the same time, so driving manually steering around a patch of bush. So no, he did he did very well to spot it. And I mean, yeah. apart from that crazy experience, how has how has harvest been? Yeah, no, really good. Sort of the dry, dry finish hasn't helped things. Yeah, had sort of a lot of that very hot weather um, when we should have been getting rain type thing. So, yeah, a lot of it's pinched off and, yeah, hasn't quite, yeah, finished us off. But I think everyone's sort of pretty happy. It's should be above average type year, so can't complain about that. And how far along into harvest is everyone looking in Lake Grace? Yeah, well over halfway. Um, a lot of blokes would be, yeah, just had such a good run. Yeah, no, it's, and it's stripping off yeah, really easy. So, yeah, no, everyone would be pretty happy. I think we'll get a, get a bit of time off for Christmas this year, which, yeah, is good. Last year, I think we're probably a couple of weeks behind after Christmas. So, yeah, that was, it, it's turned out to be really good. Mark Lavelle, who works for Nutrien at Lake Grace, catching up with Sophie Johnson and talking about the season and the close encounter with an echidna. 29 to 1, Jonathan Hopper here with an update from the newsroom. Hello. Good afternoon, Belinda. A former staff member of Niche Living has complained to the Australian Taxation Office that the Perth builder owes a number of ex-employees thousands of dollars in superannuation. The company's recently come under scrutiny for allegedly ignoring unsatisfied customers waiting on delayed builds. Analysis by the Australian Bureau of Statistics shows a rising number of Australians are going without medical care because of the cost. The Bureau says in the last year, 7% of people who needed to see a GP did not go or delayed a visit due to the cost. That's double the number of patients who reported cost as a barrier to a GP visit in the previous year. And number one draft pick Harley Reid says it was surreal to be handed the number nine jumper by All-Australian ruckman Nick Natanui when he was signed to West Coast last night. Reid has told ABC Radio Perth it's an honour to wear the number previously worn by Natanui and Premiership player Ben cousins. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you for the update, Jonathan. Appreciate that. 28 to 1.
This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along. We'll head off to Mushay just before the news at one and get all the results, the yarding, the prices at the sheep market today. Quite a big yarding today. Well, compared to last week anyway, I think over 10,000 head of sheep and lambs today. And Terry Birkin will go through those details for you. We'll also took a look, take a look at the mangoes that are heading from Australia over to LA and we're selling for, well, around about, what is it, 14 Australian dollars a mango. Well, they better be good. We'll look at that shortly here on the Country Hour. First, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology and it looks like there are some, well, severe weather coming your way if you live in some parts of the Southwest Land Division. Caroline Crow has all the details. Let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. What's in store? Yeah, good afternoon, Belle. Uh, so at the moment, um, I'll start with just what's happening synoptically from a weather pattern in that we've got this high in the bite and it's not really going to move very fast uh, or anywhere very fast. And we're getting the trough developed down the West Coast and it's going to move off the West Coast over the well, it is sitting pretty much off the west coast and it's going to deepen. And between that, the high pressure system and that uh, trough, we're going to have a good east to northeasterly wind. And really, that is going to be the pattern that we're going to see um, through the outlook period, Bell, until uh, early next uh, week, really. Um, so, with that, we're getting dry, hot, uh, warm northeasterly winds, or hot, warm, hot northeasterly winds uh, pushing right up towards the west coast. And we're seeing an increase in temperatures. Uh, those winds are pretty gusty, they were pretty gusty this morning as well, uh, particularly through uh, the the hills area uh, and we're going to see that for the next couple of days as well. So uh, from a temperature perspective, Bell, we're looking at getting 8 to 12, even 14 degrees above average through uh, those western parts um, of the southwest land division. It's still going to be hot through uh, the inland parts as well, definitely an above average, but the peak um, above average uh, region is going to be sort of the west west coastal parts, getting into the, the 40s um, and right down to that southwest corner as well, getting 38s um, through uh, up to Collie, getting up to 37s, 38s around Man jump up and, and sort of right through that southwest corner. Uh, so definitely some hot weather coming across Bell. From a wind perspective, I did mention a pretty fresh and gusty um, east to northeasterly winds. Uh, it's going to be uh, continuing into tomorrow. So tomorrow potentially... Um, could be the peak, particularly from the gustiness. Uh, and then coming into uh, Thursday, still gusty, but probably see it start moderating a little bit on Friday um, and Saturday. In saying that, the south coast uh, does seem to maintain a good easterly uh, fresh fresh wind right along the south coast there. Uh, from a weather perspective, Belle, as that trough deepens, um, potentially we could see uh, some, there's a slight risk of getting some thunderstorms. So today the thunderstorms are forecast... Uh, through uh, the central wheat belt and uh, might just get into uh, that very far sort of adjacent parts um, of the central west district. So that's the far inland, so those eastern parts. We've also, we've already seen a, a lightning strike or two uh, through northeastern parts of the um central wheat belt today, Bell, uh, and these thunderstorms, not expecting much rainfall with them, so they're likely to be what we call the dry thunderstorms um, or a dry lightning risk uh, because they're not going to have much thunder uh, rainfall with them. Coming into tomorrow, um, the, the greater risk is sort of uh, for thunderstorms is through the uh, 
northern inland parts of the central west district uh, but there is a chance that we could see them extend further south uh, sort of into the lower west and through into the central wheat belt as well um, and similar sort of over the next couple of days um, the, the higher uh, chance of those thunderstorms is going to be through uh, the northern parts of the southwest land division, sort of in that central west uh, district, um, adjacent parts of the central wheat belt and uh, potential though for them to sort of creep further south though down the uh, west coast as that trough um, deepens bell. So pretty hot uh, temperatures it's going to be fresh east northeasterly winds is kind of the story with um, the potential chance of getting um, dry thunderstorms mostly through the uh, northern and uh, western parts of the southwest land division um, from a from a temperature perspective I know that we will go through the warnings later Belle but I will just mention that we do have a heat wave warning out for um, the central west, lower west and southwest districts. So that's how hot it is. And overnight temperatures are pretty warm as well. So we're getting into the mid-20s continually for a couple of days. Um, and also we're seeing elevated fire danger ratings uh, with the temperatures and winds as well, Bell. Yeah, I think I saw, is it Wednesday and Thursday, 40 degrees for... Perth in in the city, and it's it's um, at that that point of the year where we go from you know from complaining about how cold it's been over winter to complaining how hot it is. I think we're at that point. It is definitely Val. Uh, that's right. There's going to be probably a large area where we're going to be sort of 39, 40, 41 degrees uh, through the Perth area and through north up Morawa, sort of Mora, Mullawa, um, and all in that area there. So definitely. Um, hot uh, and that's sort of like like you said so Wednesday, Thursday uh, coming into Friday and then inland parts um, sort of a little bit further uh, east, Meriden sort of 37s, 38s through that area there so not too much far off that 40 degrees but um, definitely sort of hot and um, continuing continuing I guess is the the aspect of it as well that it's potentially a prolonged uh, three, four, five day event um, happening at the moment before the trough potentially moves inland early next week. And so what's the story then in northern and eastern parts, Caroline? Yeah, so uh, through uh, the Kimberley uh, and the interior, uh, we've got uh, showers and thunderstorms uh, continuing throughout the forecast period. Uh, they are potentially, um, or rainfall uh, from the thunderstorms in the Kimberley uh, looks to be increasing a little bit, so getting a bit of rain out of them. Uh, I know that Richard will go through the falls, but we had a couple of decent falls uh till 9am this morning through the Kimberley area. And then, um, so that's through the forecast period uh, going right into the weekend. And then along the trough, uh, we'll also see uh, some thunderstorms as well. So for today, uh, we're looking at um, from uh, central parts of the Pilbara, so close to the coastal areas, but unlikely to sort of just get right on the coast, but uh, through the central Pilbara down into eastern parts of the Gascoigne and just scraping into northwest western parts of the gold fields. Coming into uh, Wednesday, the most likely area uh, down the trough is going to be uh, through the southern or uh, southwestern parts of the Gascoigne there adjacent to the central west where the thunderstorms potentially are, but we could see them extend all the way through north, uh, right up the trough through the Gascoigne and into the western Pilbara. And then similar story for 
Thursday and Friday as well and extending through the Pilbara. So um, sort of just a little bit of variation, I guess, on, on the exact boundaries of where the thunderstorms are over the next few days, Bell, but effectively following the trough uh, from the Kimberley through down to the Southwest Land Division uh, through that Pilbara and Gascoyne area. Uh, through a little bit more of the southeast, um, it's going to be generally clear and dry. Temperatures are a little bit below uh, average in the, the southeast of the state because uh, they're tending a little bit more in a southeasterly wind regime, just getting the ocean off the air a little bit there. Um, but otherwise, it's going to be pretty windy through those areas as well over the next couple of days. And now, Kaz, I know you've mentioned these warnings, but let's just recap to highlight them for this afternoon. Yes, sure, Belle. So there's the heatwave warning. Uh, now that's for the Central West, Lower West and South West districts over the coming days. Uh, and that's for an extreme, uh, sorry, severe uh, heatwave. Uh, there is also uh, the fire weather warning for today uh, for the Lower West and Brockman and uh, there's a chance that we will see that uh, extended through a larger area come tomorrow. And uh, there is also the uh, – we do have – sorry, I mentioned, I mentioned the gusts are about the hills and foothills. So we have got a severe weather warning out for the hills and foothills come tomorrow morning uh, with those gusts potentially uh, getting up to around 90 uh, kilometres per hour in the easterly winds in the overnight and morning period. And there is also a marine uh, wind warning for the uh, west coast and along the south coast as well, Belle. Well, there is a bit going on. Thank you so much for going through all those details. Appreciate that. Cheers, Belle. 18 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And as Kaz was just saying, there's been a bit of rain about in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. So with those details, here's Richard Hudson. Yeah, and it is only in the Kimberley. So El Questro, 26 mils, Gib River, 10 Halls Creek 7, Kingston Rest 29, Kununurra had 22 at the airport, but 79 at the checkpoint and at the Deepherd Station 45, so it was all over the place. Mount Barnett 5, Nicholson and Wyndham both had 11, and nowhere else in the entire state had any rain at all. ABC Radio, Harvest Ban Information. Yeah, due to the risk of fire, a few shires have put a harvest ban in place. Not as many as what I thought. Uh, Dalwalla knew and uh, the city of Geraldton, and that includes Mullawar and also Yalgoo. So if you'd like more detailed information on those harvest bans and which zones or the lifting of them, just get in touch with your local shire. So just repeating, harvest bans in place right now for the shires of Dalwalla knew and the city of Greater Geraldton, that includes Mullawar and also Yalgoo. number of fires burning throughout Western Australia as well at the moment. About eight are at an advice level. So that's right up in the Kimberley all the way down to Esperance. And a heatwave advice, as you just heard, for the Central West Land Division. And so there is a total fire ban in place for parts of Western Australia, in mainly the Perth metropolitan region, the Goldfields Midlands and the Southwest regions. So in the Perth metro region, that includes... Armadale, Chittering, Gingin, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Jaredale and Swan. In the Goldfields Midlands region, it's mainly 2J. And then in the southwest region, it's Collie, Dardanup, Harvey, Murray and Waruna. You know what you can and can't do during a total fire ban. And if you don't know, then uh, just do a search for DFES, D-F-E-S, WA, and if you'd like more details on which shires actually have a total fire ban in place, just do a search for emergency 
and WA, and you'll be able to find it very easily. That'll also have the details on that storm activity that is due, and it also has details on the heatwave advice. Now, at this time of year, um, it, it sort of sounds like Richard Hudson's very interested in the rain and the harvest bans, uh, the fire information around the state. But the thing that really gets his attention at this time of year, and believe me, I know because I sit next to him uh, side by side, so yesterday and today, it's just non-stop draft in the <laughs> AFL. Uh, you're right across this, Richard. Uh, well, I, I wish you'd stop prattling on about it. I, you can't, can't shake you up at all. <laughs> it's my glazed over eyes. I try and give you the impression I'm not interested, but it's obviously not working. As you've heard in the news, yes, it started yesterday afternoon and obviously the big one was Harley Reid being picked up by West Coast. Uh, the first WA player chosen was uh, Daniel Curtin coming from uh, Claremont. But the second one was Colton Tolstrup, who got picked up at lucky number 13 by the Melbourne Footy Club. Now, Colton's family farms cattle in the Esperance region. And you might remember last September, so just a bit over a year ago, I chatted to him straight after he'd played in a Colts semi-final for Subiaco. And at the time, he was still studying at Cunderdon Ag College. And I asked him what it was like having two very different career options ahead of him, footy and farming. I think it's pretty good considering footy doesn't last you forever as well. And I think that uh, having the agricultural background coming from Esperance and the farm, um, I think it's given me, set me up pretty well for when, the footy, when my footy career finishes. And yeah, pretty, pretty lucky that parents have devoted a fair chunk, of their, um, fair chunk of their free time outside of work to be able to get me to where I am. How have you gone this year? Because you're studying at Cunderdon Ag College, but obviously you're playing here at Subi in Perth. There must be a fair bit of travelling. Uh, yeah, so uh, I was I'm the youngest in my grade, so it was mostly mum and dad coming up from Esperance, so doing about an hour detour to come pick me up at Cundy, bring me to training, so they're doing about an eight-hour trip one way, So and they're doing a fair, fair bit of kilometres. So I think once I got my licence, I've sort of been doing it myself, but I started off, yeah, school, school was the main priority this year. And, um, yeah, been lucky enough to have, like, the, um, the teachers at school give me uh, plenty, of, plenty of help and get me through the year. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm balancing quite well. It seems like there's a very high percentage of AFL players come from rural Australia. Why do you reckon that is? Um, obviously, so down in Esperance, we have two year groups in one, in one grade. So every second year you're playing as an underager. And then you're playing your game and you're going to play up. And I reckon every year I played a game of footy with my brother it's bigger men and being like parents being heavily involved with the footy club so I've always stayed around and got around the, the senior boys and sort of like learned a bit of the tricks of the trade from, from them and just like a, yeah, a bit of a baseline. The boys from the country are a lot more bigger and go, go, go a little bit harder at the ball. Tougher? Yeah, I'd probably say a little bit tougher but, but no, it's been, it's, been a, yeah, it's been a good transition I think coming from the country to the city and um, yeah, it's been a good opportunity. If you don't make it in AFL, if you decide to go to do something in farming, is that something you're seriously looking at doing? Do you have a farming background? Uh, yeah, so we have a cattle farm. Done a bit of harvest work with the McDonald's um, down in Esperance area at Conningup. So done a little bit of both with livestock and, um, and uh, cropping as well. So I've been lucky enough to have that. But yeah, I think definitely going to the livestock. You know, I'll probably aim towards a stock agent. And at, at Cunderdon Ag College now, what are you enjoying the most? It's nearly over. <laughs> no, um, probably just how busy we are. I think we've been quite flat out. I mean, for myself, I've been doing 
been to an ATAR as well as seven certs. And I think just the variety of opportunities we're allowed to have um, from going from the shearing shed, shearing sheep, classing wool, to going then to the piggery and on the other end, going and work with cattle. Um, and then also having the trade, so getting hands on with welding and automotive, stuff like that. I think it's um, been a great two years at the school, so really enjoyed it. Colton Tolstrup, who's from the Esperance region, talking to Richard Hudson last September. And yesterday afternoon, the Melbourne Football Club chose him with pick 13 in the AFL draft. 11 minutes to one. Well, mangoes from the Northern Territory have been exported to Los Angeles and are selling for nine US dollars each which is nearly 14 Australian dollars a mango. Scott Ledger is a veteran of the mango industry and is the supply chain advisor for Manbalu Mangoes. He's in LA at the moment watching R2E2 mangoes arrive and says despite the long journey, they're looking great and tasting great. They are looking fabulous and they're tasting delicious. I don't think we could do any better, Matt. It's... um Real pleasure to see such great quality on the shelf, you know, given they were basically picked two weeks ago. Uh, so the retailers are very enthusiastic about it. So the um, Gelson's Markets, we've been supplying for five or six seasons. So the uh, produce managers um, know know our mangoes and they just love them. Uh, they just uh, love the colour, the size and, and the flavour. And these, of course, are R2E2 mangoes. Your company, Mambaloo, is famous for its Kensington prides. Why is it the R2E2 that you that you target this market with? We have, uh, in the past, we have supplied Kensington pride into the US market and they absolutely love the flavour of, of, of KP. KP is a softer mango when it's ripe. So, you know, this is a really challenging um, supply chain. So the R2E2 uh, is a better match in terms of the requirements of what we've got to achieve with the handling. But another reason why they love the R2s is because it's it's large and colourful, lovely blush colour and nothing like it any other mango that's currently available. So the other mangoes that are available are coming from Ecuador and Peru. They are medium-sized mangoes, about the same as KPs. So so these these are twos of, uh, of ours are really quite distinctive and different to what else is available. And uh, how much does an American have to fork out to buy an Aussie mango at the moment. So in in Gelson's, um, they're they're retailing for eight ninety nine uh, a mango, and in Sam's Club, slightly smaller size, they're, they're retailing uh, for a three pack for twenty dollars. Nineteen eighty eight, I think it is. Yeah, I've got here. I've got so, here in my calculator eight dollars ninety nine. Equates to thirteen dollars yeah. eighty-one a mango each in Aussie dollars. Whew. That's right. And what we all the things we need to do to actually deliver to the shelf. You know, it it, it is it, it does cost a lot of money to to actually put it on the shelf. And people buy, but people buy them at that price, hey? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, you know, Gelson's, you know, it's it's like a um, it's a, like a Harris Farms, and they've got twenty eight around um, LA. So you know, their customers are high end customers or mid to high end, and so I've been asking the produce managers, you know, does the eight ninety nine is that a barrier? Does that stop people buying? And their their standard comment is a few, but uh, but he's, they in Gelson's most of them don't balk at the price. It's because they know the variety and they know it's going to be a great eating experience, and they know they get plenty of mango with an R two. The price that's not a barrier to their regular customers. How big of a market has the US become for Australian mangoes? It's pretty stable at present in terms of in terms of the growth. So it's so after after the first few years it, it grew. In the last year, you know, particularly with COVID, that's put a you know a real constraint on the supply. Mm. But you know, for us, for Mambaloo, it's it's going really well. So okay. um, because I, I felt like I found an old interview from twenty fifteen. And uh, it was Gavin Skur at the time, the president of AMIA, predicting the US would grow to a million trays a year. Uh, that hasn't We're played out, <laughs> but yeah. we haven't we haven't quite got there. And the fundamental reason is it's a really hard supply chain to manage because you've got to pre-ripen before the irradiation. It means you're you're then having to control the the ripening process from then onwards very carefully. And if, if you don't manage it carefully, you'll, you'll lose sh- shelf life. So we're, we're only supplying into, into LA at this stage. So, you know, potentially there's the whole of America that we can supply. And well, in five years' time, what, what do you think this market could look like for the Australian industry, Scott? Well, in five years' time, I... I I would say we'll be we'll be um, exporting into all areas of the US. Scott Ledger, he's a supply chain advisor for Manbalu Mangoes, and he was speaking to Matt Brand. Six minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Earlier in the hour, talking about the rising and rising popularity of Nolo wines, so no alcohol or very low alcoholic wines. In response to that, um, it's Nicola from Witchcliffe who says, I did dry January, awful non-alcoholic wines, high price, and might have well drunk blackberry juice. Until it tastes the same as normal wine, I'm not paying the money. I'll stick to water. Cheers from Nicola. Thank you for that. And pretty much the same sentiment from James. Just drink weak cordial from a wine glass. It's just as good as non-alcoholic wine. I tend to agree. I like the lemon cordial. Chockers full of ice and uh, water. I think that tastes really great. Uh, Life of the party, obviously, with no alcohol and no sugar. Uh, And also we heard from Tress Wormsley, who's the CEO of Intergrain, and she was talking about how she thinks it's time more global resources are thrown at finding solutions to food insecurity and climate change. And she says if we think big and take risks, you know, we might end up developing something like a nitrogen-fixing wheat. In response to that, Graham says, 
Uh, nitrogen fixing wheat is a dream, but not a reality. How about the scientists take baby steps and work on a wheat plant that is better growing in high aluminium soils or heck, even a frost tolerant wheat? Thank you, Graham. And this from Les. Talking about nitrogen-fixing wheat, Casherina, the common West Australian tree, generates nitrogen with a symbiotic arrangement with bacteria. Maybe wheat could. Thank you for that, Les. Appreciate it. It is four minutes to one. We'll head off to, where is it today? Mushay for the sheep market results in just a minute. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. Young Australians struggling as older Australians get richer. Fresh evidence about the growing divide. What are they thinking? Borrowers look for clues as details of the latest Reserve Bank Board meeting are released. And hope and heartache. Premature babies evacuated to safety from Gaza as the conflict drags on. Those stories and more on The World Today. Three minutes to one, off to the market now. And 10,336 sheep and lambs were pinned for sale at the Mushay sheep market today. That is up 5,354 from last week's sale. Terry Birkin has the details for you. Hello, Terry. Hi, Belinda. There was a high increase in numbers this week, more than doubling last week, so it was generous drafts of ewes and several large lines of lighter store lambs on offer. Improved supplies of trade lambs were presented, and although pricing was similar to last week, a high percentage of the heavier lamb categories were reaching the top end of those values, lifting the average carcass weight to 565 cents a kilo. Heavy mutton eased slightly, while all other categories remained firm. The usual buying group were in attendance, along with some fresh faces in the restocking sector. Store lambs started from $12 up to $68, while light lambs were selling from $45 to $88 a head. Trade lambs returned $80 to $122, while heavy lambs sold to a top of $132 a head. Merino weather hoggets were mostly in average condition, making $15 to $35, and the same story for Merino ewe hoggets, selling from $11 to $41 with a skin, while the best crossbred hoggets topped out at $45 a head. Bony ewes ranged from $2 to $16, while medium to heavy ewes returned $15 to $35, with the exception of two small pens of heavy four-wheel ewes reaching $55, and most rams sold for $10 a head. This is Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thank you for going through those details. Tomorrow it's off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market there. Uh, Two minutes to one, and earlier we were talking about how harvest at a crop near Lake Grace was, um, well, it came to an abrupt stop after they found a cute little echidna and had to um, figure out a way of getting it out of the way. And you've had a few little stories too to share. This one from Bullet at Querreding. Three trips to Perth in two days to get the right part brought my harvest to a halt. At least I maintained my four-day work week. Thank you for that, Bullet. Uh, My wife has put a halt on my harvest in Korea. Real jobs supposedly on the mine. Missing farm life and jealous of you all, says Mucker. Uh, This too, we had a passenger a couple of years ago, a mulga snake. Uh, Fred on the header sent through a photo of that snake. That would have um, had me running, screaming from the site. Thank you for that. And John says, I had to stop seeding last year to move an echidna. 300 metres out in the paddock needed a large screwdriver to get it out of the ground. What a job and a great photo. Thank you for sending that through, John. Appreciate it. On the ABC right across Western Australia, time for an update from the newsroom. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.